Support for the Fallon Forum is provided by The Fighting Burrito, located at 117 Welch Avenue in Ames, Iowa. The Fighting Burrito offers a varied menu with vegetarian options as well as the option to build your own burrito. More information can be found at www.fightingburrito.com. That's www.fightingburrito.com. Support provided by Gateway Market. Gateway Market offers a unique selection of local, organic, and eco-friendly items. Get more information at gatewaymarket.com. Underwriting provided by Hawk Restaurant, located at East 5th and Walnut. Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. More information can be found at hawktable.com. That's hoqtable.com. Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting live from La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. All right, so hey, before we go to the uh, the substance of our program, which is pretty heavy today, we got Korea, we got, we got uh, Vladimir Putin uh, decimating the opposition in an election. Surprise, surprise. And we've got... Uh, uh, more to talk about Donald Trump and the um, the Mueller investigation. We'll also be looking at some uh, developments in pipeline legislation relevant to Dakota access. All right, so um, later in the program, we'll be talking with Jesse Waxman with Green Corps about the uh, Mighty Earth campaign to hold Tyson Foods accountable. We'll also be talking about uh, the incredible election. Oh, wait a minute. Not so incredible election in Russia uh, yesterday. And we'll talk about... Uh, uh, President Donald Trump and what he's doing to uh, push back against the investigation into his uh, alleged collusion with uh, Russia during the uh, last election. But first, I want to welcome two esteemed guests to the program. In the studio with me, uh, Linda Lewis and Daniel Jasper, both with the American Friends Service Committee, both with a lifetime of experience and connections uh, with uh, North Korea. I mean, I think, I think, Linda, you've been there, what, 15 times? Yes, I have. Yeah, and uh, Dan, you've been there a few times yourself? Uh, just once, uh, just in 2016. Okay. But uh, North Korea, again, incredibly important right now, uh, not just because of the um, – of uh, uh, well, uh, for so many reasons, but um, I, I want to play a clip later in the program for you that, that drives my concern about this. But, uh, but uh, you know, people are talking about diplomatic measures, and we certainly need that. Uh, we have a history of diplomacy through agriculture here in Iowa, dating back to Nikita Khrushchev and the uh, Cold War, when a farmer uh, in Coon Rapids, Iowa, invited the uh, the head of the the head of a uh, communist Soviet Union to come here. And uh, while that didn't end the Cold War, it established uh, some much needed uh, uh, relations, uh, citizen uh, citizen initiative uh, relationships. I think that that mattered. And um, I, th I know some people are talking about the importance of that with Korea right now. So let's just jump right in. Uh, Linda, maybe kick us off. You've been there uh, 15 times over the course of how many years? Uh, seven. Wow. And uh, actually, uh, people are surprised to learn that Americans go to North Korea. But AFSC has had a program there since 1980. 
starting with people-to-people exchanges and then uh, assistance in the famine in the late 90s. And since 96, we have had uh, a partnership with uh, several uh, partner farms uh, working on increasing production because food security, Mm -hmm. we think, is the key humanitarian issue in North Korea. But I would say in 2001, we in AFSC, in fact, brought a delegation of North Korean uh, agriculture people to Iowa. So you can even update from Khrushchev. Good. All right. I, I was. I'd forgotten that. Thank you. Uh, and so, uh, I, I I imagine that uh, the uh, the uh, King Jong Jong Un and his regime, if I can call it a regime, is uh, is amenable to these visits. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, as part of our program, uh, we take uh, North Koreans outside uh, to a lot of different places. Since about 2005, it's been impossible to come to the U.S. Um, but if it's something that contributes to the knowledge of agriculture specialists, uh, then they're um, – uh, yes, they're quite willing to do it. So, Dan, uh, you were there in 2016. Yeah, what what was your experience in terms of um, interacting with the uh, with the? You know, I, I assume you had some interaction with government officials while you were there. Uh, yeah, uh, you know a little bit, and most of my interactions was actually with the, the farm managers that we work with. And one of the things that we were looking at was, uh, is it possible to run exchanges um, like the one that we saw in two thousand one, and the exchanges that we had uh, up until about two thousand five. Um, in fact, uh, this is a policy that we have been promoting uh, for the last couple of years, and we have been talking to the State Department about um, them using uh, mechanisms that already exist for these types of exchanges and that they've run in um, other similar circumstances, say with Iran or with China or with the USSR. Uh, and in fact, what we were uh, arguing was that uh, this is just as possible with North Korea as it was with Iran or China or USSR. Um, so we set about a, a feasibility study. Uh, and what we found was that these exchanges are, are possible. Uh, and in fact, it's just policy that's standing in the way. There's no regulations, um, and there's no uh, real insurmountable concerns that stand in the way. And are, again, are you getting any kind of a favorable response from anyone within the uh, administration here in this country? Ah, well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, we've raised this on a number of occasions. I think that um, we don't really hear very good responses as to why they're not utilizing these exchanges. Um, sometimes we hear things like, uh, oh, we don't want to send mixed signals to the North Koreans, or uh, we don't want this to be looked at as a carrot um, to the North Koreans, which is, in our view, very problematic. Um, this is probably the way that uh, diplomacy begins in comparable circumstances in um, throughout history, we start with these small exchanges. And so right. if we really want to change the situation, this is where we need to start. Yeah. And Linda, has there been any pushback by the uh, Trump administration against your involvement with uh, North Korea or AFSC's um, involvement? Well, yes. I would say recently uh, that the uh, humanitarian actors on the ground in North Korea uh, tend to be the ones most hindered by sanctions. Um, Most people assume, and certainly it's the intention of the U.N., to not have sanctions get in the way of humanitarian activities. But in the past year, as you may know, uh, the Trump administration took the unusual step of putting a travel ban on Americans going to North Korea. And so So how does that that allow you? You you can't go anymore, right? uh, Well, I did go in November, (laughs) but it's a difficult process, and you have to apply for a special validation pass 
passport that's good for one trip there, and they are giving it to not very many of us. Uh, AFSC has a long track record of working there in humanitarian activities, so I, I we were think, allowed to go. I would think that would hurt your prospects. I mean, I would think if Trump was going to give out some of these uh, these uh, limited supply of, of travel <laughs> visas, he'd give them out to his his corporate buddies, uh, not to nope. a, an nope. organization that's working for peace and diplomacy. Uh, nope. Uh, journalists have gotten them. Uh, but mostly they they say they really don't want random Americans just being able to wander into North Korea because it's too dangerous. Well, congratulations on not being a random American. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, and the... Um, Again, sanctions are often regarded as a preferred tool to a lot of other options, military intervention, of course, and all-out nuclear war. But uh, we forget that they do indeed hurt real people on the ground a lot more than they hurt the people in power often. But, uh, again, regarding sanctions, maybe you saw this uh, clip from or heard this clip from uh, President Trump's uh, – it was a press conference. It was a question from, I believe, a British journalist, and it was regarding the possibility that sanctions might fail – and if they failed, uh, what would be the next option? Uh, well, I'll speak to failing, and maybe he can speak to the next option. Um, but, you know, when we ask uh, North Koreans, how are sanctions affecting you? Uh, they say, how would we know since the U.S. has had sanctions on North Korea since 1953? Oh, really? It's been that long. Let me, let me play this clip from February 23 of this year and, and see, what you, see, what, um, see what you think of this. I don't think I'm going to exactly play that card, but we'll have to see. If the sanctions don't work, we'll have to go phase two. And phase two may be a very rough thing, may be very, very unfortunate for the world, but hopefully the sanctions will work. We have tremendous support all around the world for what we're doing. It really is a rogue nation. If we can make a deal, it'll be a great thing. And if we can't, something will have to happen. And all I can say to that is, uh, is wow, something will have to happen. Uh, it could be very bad for the world. Uh, what do you think he's talking about? Uh, well, I mean, I th- you know, I think everybody probably uh, understands what he's talking about. But it's these types of vague threats that are really not helping the situation and making it much more combustible. And I think increasing the, the room for error and miscalculation in the military. Uh, and Linda spoke to, to the impact of sanctions. And, uh, you know, there's a, a full suite of options, really, that, uh, that the United States government is just not looking at. And uh, they tend to be in the humanitarian realm, um, things like people-to-people exchanges, as we mentioned. Um, but, you know, there's actually uh, probably a few thousand divided Korean-American families that are trying to reunite with their family members in North Korea. These are living links that we could restore that could really go a long way in improving relations and start to improve cooperation and understand what each other's motives are. Yeah. Well. Well. Let, let's talk. I want to talk more about the uh, options to uh, something that could be very bad for the world, in Donald Trump's words, uh, and uh, and again, an option to sanctions. Uh, later in the program, we'll talk about uh, 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 Vladimir Putin's uh, stunning victory. Wink, wink, wink. In the uh, recent uh, Russian election, we'll also talk about uh, President Trump. Uh, and uh, whether he's trying to squelch the, the Mueller investigation into collusion. We'll also talk with uh, Jesse Waxman about the, the uh, Mighty Earth campaign focused on Tyson Foods. Uh, in the studio with me, uh, Daniel Jasper, 
and Linda Lewis with American Friends Service Committee. We're talking about North Korea. If you'd like to join the conversation, join us at 515-528-8122. That's 515-528-8122. Let's uh, just go straight to a phone call. We got Randy. I think Randy Evans is on the phone with us. Hello, Randy. How are you? Hi, Ed. How are you? Good. So you know a little a little about North Korea, I believe. Well, I, I've been following the discussion with interest uh, this morning. Uh, uh, your your guests have provided an important uh, perspective for uh, people in Iowa and around the country. Uh, I I fear that uh, the uh, president's uh, uh, you know my button is bigger than your button kinds of comments are. Uh, indication of where he's likely to take us and uh, I think we uh, we failed to realize that North Korea and uh, with uh, uh, you know millions of little Kim Jong uh, you know there are people who live there who have uh, you know they have no alternative and mm. uh, uh, to see them as just uh, uh, faceless pawns in this uh, uh, yeah. dispute is very troubling. That's, a, that's uh, a really good, you bring up a really good point, Randy. Let me ask uh, Linda and Daniel about that. Uh, my button is bigger than your button. I mean, that's consistent with uh, Trump saying in the clip we just heard in the previous segment, uh, if sanctions don't work, we're going to phase two. Uh, that all sounds like military provocation. I mean, you said, Daniel, we know what he's talking about. And he's, I mean, it sounds like, and Trump has even said as much, nuclear, you know, a nu- nuclear, a nuclear weapons are not off the table. So, um, you know, how do you how do you address the um, the almost uh, childish uh, demeanor that you see, you know, betrayed by uh, portrayed by both leaders at a time when obviously, uh, you know, diplomatic solutions are the only viable alternative to phase two. Well, could I start by pointing out? Of course, we don't think that peace might break out. Um, uh, but the recent uh, uh, efforts between North and South Korea to agree, I think uh, when people are brought face-to-face with the reality of a catastrophic war that, of course, would impact uh, North and South Koreans uh, and, not, uh, and not Americans, obviously North and South Korea have begun to talk uh, and consider alternatives, uh, alternatives um, to war. And uh, North Koreans that I know say to me, "We why why would either North or South Korea go to war? Because um, why would we wreck everything that we've worked so hard for for the past seventy years?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, you know it's worth noting. I have I've had conversations with uh, some of the officials in the uh, administration and. Um, you know, what, what I really hear is that this, this option, this bloody nose option or preemptive strike or uh, any type of military option has really sort of been overblown, I think, and it's been sort of leaked as a calculated um, measure. Uh, it's worth noting that Dennis Rodman gave uh, Kim Jong-un a copy of The Art of War um, when on his trip, and we don't think that that was by accident. <clears throat> There's clearly a, a game being played here, and in fact that 
what we're hoping is that uh, some of these things that we're raising are actually much more viable options and are being considered much more um, uh, being considered uh, by the administration much more uh, than they are considering military yeah. options. And again, some of just to, to lay out again some of those options, Daniel. Yeah, and so you know, I had mentioned uh, reuniting Korean American families with their family members in North Korea. That's one option that we think is really urgent. These family members are aging; they haven't met their family members in over sixty years, and uh, you know, time is running out. And that that can't happen unless the Trump administration decides to liberalize. Uh exchange policy. That and uh, the travel restrictions are, are also on the way. And, you know, there's another option that's very parallel to that. After the Korean War, there was about 5,000 U.S. service members were left in Korea. Their remains are still in the country today. And, in fact, in the past, for about 10 years, the U.S. and North Korean militaries ran joint operations where they found these uh, remains and they repatriated them back to the United States. This was an operation that was lauded on both sides. It reduced the room for error and miscalculation. And both militaries saw that, you know, if they're cooperating, there's much less likelihood of war. So this is something that we see as a viable option going forward and probably the easiest low-hanging fruit. Let me bring uh, Randy Evans on the phone with us back into the conversation for a second here. Uh, Randy, you were, you've been with the uh, Des Moines Register for a while. You're, you're retired now, but you were with the Register for a while. And uh, you probably have some recollection of the importance of the visit of Nikita Khrushchev uh, to Iowa as part of a way of beginning to thaw the relationship between the U.S. and the USSR through agricultural dialogue. Uh, do you see that as a reasonable uh, option? Uh, I mean, Daniel mentioned well, several others, but do you see that as a reasonable option toward helping to thaw relationships between relations between the U.S. and Korea? I think that uh, the solution has to involve lots of uh, uh, steps, if you will, rather than uh, uh, you know kidding ourselves that there's going to be one. Uh, overarching settlement, and I think that uh, you know when you think back to the uh, the Cold War era uh, in our uh, the Soviet Union, uh, I think it I think it was uh, very important the the face to face contact the uh, uh, people in in uh, the United States uh, farmers from Iowa who saw a a market for their products and. Uh, uh, and people uh, in in the the Soviet Union who saw uh, the value of uh, uh, of international trade and mm. uh, and you know helping them to see uh, you know the benefit from uh, uh, more active uh, participation in that sort of world community. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I worry that uh, you know our president's. Uh, uh, chest thumping is uh, uh, is uh, getting his base to think that anything short of uh, annihilating Kim Jong Un is going to be seen as right. uh, as a, a failure, and and we but, don't need that kind of uh, stress and pressure. Right, but maybe the maybe the presidential chest thumping has what uh, was I mean maybe Trump will argue that hey I, I, I pounded my chest I threatened I threatened phase two and now look at it as a result I've got Kim Jong-un Jong -un coming to the table we're going to talk in May it's going to be great something big will happen it'll be wonderful uh, and so I, I mean even though I think that would be uh, the continued uh, blather of a blowhard there may be something to the reality that now they actually are they actually are going to meet do you, I mean do you see it Linda do you see that as a 
as a positive development? And do you have any hope that there might be something good coming out of that uh, conversation in May? Yes, I think it's a very positive development. You know, um, I think Randy's uh, uh, Randy's right that we forget that um, peace, just like war, takes investment. It takes strategy and patience and planning. You don't get there overnight, and you have to start with um, with small steps. And actually, if if Trump, even Trump, saying that he's going to meet with Kim Jong Un, is a big a big small step. Uh, and it certainly is not going to go all the way, but it's a start. And, you know, and, I, and I'm curious, too, about whether, um, you know, Kim Jong-un has said that uh, he's going to uh, get rid of his nuclear weapons, possibly, if things go well in terms of dialogue and moving forward. Do you see that as as uh, as just a, a ruse, a ploy, or is there something to that that we should be taking seriously? Well, I think, I mean, at this point, we, we really do need to take them seriously. And they may have different conceptions about how denuclearization plays out. But at this point, I mean, they said they'll come to the table. And I think that's where we're at. Uh, how we got here is probably almost irrelevant at this point. But it is worth noting that, you know, threats to North Korea from the United States are not, it's nothing new. Donald Trump didn't start this. Uh, you know, the United States has been running uh, nuclear-capable assets past North Korea uh, for decades. But he's certainly taken it to new heights. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, the, the, the South Koreans really are the, the skilled diplomats here, and they, they've really turned around a situation. Regardless, uh, we, we do need to take the North Koreans seriously, and we, need, we do need to start engaging. So, and we saw some North-South North cooperation in the Olympics recently. That was good. Right? That was great. Yeah. Uh, I was actually there. I saw it. <laughs> oh, you happen. were? I was. Wow. Uh, okay. you know, and, uh, you know, one thing that I like to point out was that when I, you know, to my to my right were the heads of state, and I could sort of see the formalities playing out. And behind me was actually the trailers for the North Korean cheerleaders. And what I saw behind me was sort of a frenzied, hurried uh, cooperation. And I think that this is probably what you would compare to a military exercise, but for diplomacy. Were you there as well, Linda? Uh, no, I wasn't. So, so did you see, Daniel, did you see uh, uh, a lot of cooperation between North and South Koreans, you know, just, again, one-on-one -on -one individually? Uh, well, it was more of a group effort from what I saw. I mean, but it was coordinated, and it was yeah. sort of playing out sort of beautifully. And, again, it has to be what you might consider a diplomatic exercise. And this is the kind of thing that we need to start be pursuing with the, uh, from the United States perspective. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Linda, any, any last words before we run to a break? Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Evans, you still you still with us? I am. Yeah. Discussion. Any last Are words you? before we run to a break, Randy? No, I think that uh, we ought to uh, uh, not fear uh, talking and negotiating and discuss. Uh, that is uh, certainly uh, preferable to uh, uh, you know worrying about uh, uh, body counts and things like that. Uh, we ought to make sure that we don't fail to uh, uh, to use all of the uh, options available to us uh, and not concentrate on the military. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, thanks for joining us, Randy. And, uh, well, I, I guess I have one last comment slash question. Uh, uh, is there any effort underway right now, perhaps led by AFSC or perhaps by one of our you know, farm organizations or even individual farmers to maybe invite some of the leading agriculturalists in North Korea to come and initiate that kind of exchange we saw, what, 70 years ago between Iowa and the, uh, the head of uh, Communist Soviet Union? Uh, well, certainly that's something we'd like to see happen and that... Uh, 
we are we are discussing with people here uh, what that would be like because if there is an opportunity we always like to have things to suggest that are ready to go and certainly that would be on the top of our list for AFSC of things that might be possible okay and if folks want to get in touch with you or someone else at American Friends Service Committee regarding Korea North Korea uh, what's who who's the best contact what's the best way to get in touch with you uh, I would say uh, check out our website, afsc.org backslash engage NK, and it'll have all the resources. Sorry, that's afsc.org backslash engage NK. NK is North Korea. Right, correct. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking with uh, Daniel Jasper and Linda Lewis of American Friends Service Committee. And when we come back, uh, we're going to switch gears and uh, we're going to. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure which segment I'm going to pull up next, folks, but it'll be a surprise for both of us. Join us in a few minutes back here on the Fallon Forum. That you weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine the Support for the Fallon Forum is provided by The Fighting Burrito, located at 117 Welch Avenue in Ames, Iowa. The Fighting Burrito offers a varied menu with vegetarian options as well as the option to build your own burrito. More information can be found at www.fightingburrito.com. That's www.fightingburrito.com. Support provided by Gateway Market. Gateway Market offers a unique selection of local, organic, and eco-friendly items. Get more information at gatewaymarket.com. Underwriting provided by Hawk Restaurant, located at East 5th and Walnut. Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. More information can be found at hawktable.com. That's hoqtable.com. I should stay away, but what can I do? I hear your name, and I'm a flame. A flame with such a burning desire that only a kiss. Hey, welcome back to the, uh, the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, later in the program, Jesse Waxman joining us with, uh, she's with Green Corps. We're going to be talking about the Mighty Earth campaign and efforts to hold Tyson Food accountable single time. All right, so welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, later in the program, Jesse Waxman joining us to talk about the Mighty Earth campaign targeting Tyson Foods. But I got to give you a little bit of an update on the Dakota Access pipeline fight in Iowa. Because Dakota Access is not just about, I mean, the pipeline we're talking about runs from North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Illinois. But there's a lot of, a lot of contention right now down in the bayou in uh, Louisiana where Dakota Access Energy Transfer Partners, in this case, uh, again, all, all one and the same beast, wants to extend that pipeline across some very, uh, very fragile and ecologically sensitive um, bayou. And folks are uniting against that, uh, forming the Lois La Vie camp and uh, pushing back uh, through education, through, uh, through um, civil disobedience, through a lot of other tactics, uh, through the courts as well. They had accomplished a temporary stay on the extension of that pipeline. Unfortunately, that uh, didn't, didn't hold, but uh, they're continuing to fight. Uh, here in Iowa, we're continuing to push back uh, through the courts. There is a, a, a suit filed by landowners and the Iowa Sierra Club that should be heard, oh, we're guessing this fall. In the meantime, there is significant pressure at the Iowa State House by Dakota Access, by Energy Transfer Partners, to 
passed legislation that would define the pipeline as critical infrastructure. We've talked about this before. The um, development is this. More and more rural Iowans, a lot of them Republicans, a lot of them independents, are contacting their lawmakers and saying, hey, we've got concerns about this. And again, uh, I'm not officially taking a stand on this bill in my capacity as a talk show host. Um, But I want to point out that uh, there are a lot of people, more and more people concerned about this. And again, not just because of the eminent domain impact it would have, but also because of the impact it would have on freedom of speech. That's why the unions are involved. The unions are concerned that uh, the incredible penalties that would be imposed on peaceful, nonviolent protesters could affect their ability to raise their voices in the uh, case of uh, a strike needed because of unfair working conditions or uh, an unfair contract negotiation. And, you know, I'm, I'm also we're also hearing that there are folks on the political right of the spectrum, folks who... Uh, have protested at, you know, Planned Parenthood, who feel that the bill could impact them as well. So there's more and more concern about how this legislation will will affect the First Amendment and how it affects the potential use of eminent domain. Because if this pipeline is defined as critical infrastructure, if, if it becomes part of what we consider a public utility, in the same classification as a water line, an electric line, a gas line, you know, if, if it becomes as, quote, critical as those things, then it's easier for future pipelines to justify the use of eminent domain to take land from farmers, from other landowners, to build the next round of pipe. And I think a lot of folks analyzing this from the inside, close to the, uh, close to the ground, you know, on the ground here, uh, would not be surprised to see Dakota Access or another company come in and want to build another pipeline, possibly on one of the two existing easements. And, yes, there are two. There's the one that we all know about running in from North and South Dakota, and there's another one running North-South, an abandoned pipeline that was used for a long time, since I believe the 70s. Either one of those could be open for an additional pipe, and it helps the pipeline company, not just Dakota Access, but any other pipeline company, it helps them if they don't have to worry about fighting over whether they're a public utility. If they can define themselves as critical infrastructure, they'll have a lot easier go at getting the authority to use eminent domain, at um, you know arguing publicly and and throw, throughout the entire process that they're a public utility. But you know, let's take a look at this. If your water runs out, if your water, if you turn on your tap and suddenly boom, no water. You flush your toilet, nothing happens. You're on that immediately. You don't, you, don't, you don't sit around and think, huh, I wonder if this is really a, a critical infrastructure or not. You know it is. If you're out of water, it's critical. And when Des Moines was out of water for three weeks during the flood of 1993, you know, that was a, that was a national story. That was a, a huge emergency. I mean, even out, even out for three hours is problematic. And so, and so be it with uh, electricity. The... Um, a, an unfortunate squirrel lands him or herself on a transformer and boom, your power goes out, uh, or more likely a storm. And what happens? Uh, yeah, you know. You know immediately. Boom, the lights are gone. The computer's not, uh, you know, the, 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 your computer no longer charges. All those things that we rely on heavily are suddenly not serviceable. And you know. And there is immediate action by the power company to get it fixed. 
Same thing with your gas line. You know, you use that gas to cook, and if you suddenly can't cook, you're on it. That's a critical service. That's public infrastructure. A pipeline running oil under the soil, in some cases four to eight feet deep, you don't even notice it's there. Uh, you notice it when your crop yields aren't as good because the soil has been mixed with the, with the uh, clay. You notice, of course, when it breaks, and I say when, not if, because it is a matter of when, not if. These break all the time. Check out an interesting page on Wikipedia called, I think it's called, um, uh, yeah, Pipeline Spills and Leaks in the 21st Century. Uh, it's something like that, and it goes on and on and on. It is page after page after page of pipeline breaks and leaks in the 21st century in the U.S. It's incredible how many there have been. So, yeah, you notice when it breaks. But otherwise, if that oil stops running, the only critical impact it has is on energy transfer partners' bottom line, their profits. They're the only ones affected. So, you know, don't be fooled by this. And that's the main reason the company wants this bill. And I think it's the main reason why they have taken no action against the protesters who committed acts of arson and why there are even there are, there are acts of arson committed against pipeline equipment that there's been no we, we know nothing about who might have done it. And I have a hard time believing that the FBI and other law enforcement couldn't have some leads about what happened there and hasn't taken some action against the the, the two uh, folks that they know admitted to having caused damage. My my suspicion is that they don't want to take action until they get this bill passed. That's how important this bill is to this company. They want it passed, and they want it so that they can justify their existence as critical infrastructure. My theory, take it for what it's worth, there are other people with similar theories and some that have bizarre theories that uh, make no sense at all, uh, in the realm of logic at least. Anyway, uh, uh, in the studio with us now, uh, Jesse Waxman with Green Corps. Uh, she's leading an effort by Mighty Earth to try to hold Tyson Foods accountable on how and where it sources its supply. And that's a, that's a fairly big task. Yeah, but, you know, serious people have serious enemies, so yeah. we are, why not take on the whole industry? <laughs> so, um, again, what's, tell, tell us a bit about what the, uh, what the focus of the campaign is about. Sure. So Mighty Earth is really concerned about the environmental impacts of industrial agriculture. In the United States, the biggest impact is perhaps not surprisingly coming from the meat industry. Um, what was surprising, at least to me, was um, in Mighty Earth's analysis of where this water pollution was coming from, the bulk of it comes from the way we grow corn and soy to feed livestock. So the over-application of fertilizer, um, the fact that farmers will leave fields fallow in the winter, um, a lot and of this soil erosion and so yeah exactly yeah. so we get a lot of soil erosion a lot of excess nutrients running off leading to um, things like the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico which this year was the largest um, that we've seen since they've started since yeah. Noah's started recording it it was the size so of what, why, are you, why are you picking on poor little Tyson and not those bad farmers <laughs> I don't know that I would call Tyson little um, <laughs> so the idea is going farm by farm to implement these changes is necessary but very slow and we don't we can't afford waiting um, until to go farm by farm to convince farmers to implement these practices. The idea is to create market demand and large market demand okay. for these changes. So yeah. if we can get Tyson Foods, which is the biggest meat company in the country, they're the second biggest in the world. They control a fifth of the meat industry in the United States. They have a fifth. A fifth. Okay. So yeah. I mean, poultry, beef. And pork. pork. Yeah. yeah, all yeah. of it. 
Um, So they have a lot of animals to feed every week. They're vertically integrated, which means they control the grain that all of their livestock eat as well. But but they don't don't own the farms. No, they don't own the farms, but they have a lot of buying power for grains. Okay. Right? They slaughter like 39 million animals a week, so compound that over years and weeks and that's that's a lot of animals so they they buy a lot of grain and there is a precedent for big corporations becoming more socially conscious when it comes to sourcing their product uh, i believe mcdonald's is one of the one of the big corporations that have decided to go cage free when it comes to eggs mm-hmm. and that's resulted in of course a pushback in, in, in some some states including here in iowa where the iowa legislature now re- is, is is attempting to require to um, yeah, to require small you know grocery stores that carry free range eggs to also carry uh, caged eggs, industrial eggs. If those uh, stores also service uh, WIC clients, which is uh, a bizarre um, yeah, yeah. Um, b- bizarre idea, but um, they're doing that. There's pushback, but the bottom line is corporations are beginning to make that transition. Exactly. So hopefully we're not going to see the same kind of pushback that we are in Iowa over cage-free eggs. But the principle of the campaign is the same. Um, we, you know, uh, McDonald's with cage-free, do you say eggs, chickens? Uh, yes, one, and I, one yeah, of I, I, think, I think so, yeah. I so think so McDonald's there, um, Burger King with antibiotic-free right. um, poultry, and now we're trying to do the same kind of thing with Tyson and their grains. So how long has this campaign been going on? We've been working on this for, I think, just about six, eight months. I can't do math. Months, <laughs> Since so, the end so of August. So it's uh, pretty recent. It's pretty recent, and yeah. um, it's really exciting, though, because we're starting to see traction. Tyson has um, started already to respond to our So what kind campaign. of response are you getting? Um, they're the typical PR response of we're not the only ones responsible for this kind of pollution. Why aren't you going after ethanol? Um, and that real change. Okay, so good question. Why aren't you going after <laughs> ethanol? Um, ethanol is also <laughs> responsible. We're not going to deny that. Um, when you look at the amount of grain that's going to ethanol and the amount of grain that's going to the meat industry, the meat industry has a larger proportion, both mm-hmm. from direct grains, so corn going yeah. just directly to feed animals, but then also as byproducts. So um, I know cattle will sometimes eat the uh, byproducts of whatever is used to make beer. Sure. Well, and, and the byproduct of ethanol, too, I believe, in some yeah. cases. Yeah. So, I believe that's right. So yeah. overall, So even the ethanol stream the ethanol streams streams to the, diverts yeah. to the... Uh, exactly, they, yeah. exactly. So um, <clears throat> what kind of pushback are you getting from farmers themselves? Because, uh, I mean, the, the idea is that you want farmers to continue to operate profitably, ideally with less soil erosion and nitrate runoff into the Gulf of Mexico. But um, at the same time, uh, you'd like to see them remain profitable, but uh, to grow their crops more sustainably, I believe. Is that, am, I, am I characterizing yes, it correctly? Yes, exactly. We, we want to make sure that it's still profitable for farmers since you know farmers tend to operate on very small margins. We yeah. want to make sure we're, we're not harming them. Um, but they probably don't see it this way. I'm, I'm guessing that you're getting some pushback from maybe individual farmers, but probably the, you know, the, the soybean association, the corn growers, probably the beef and cattle or beef and hog producers as well. No, surprisingly not. We haven't, and I mean, gladly not. Yeah. We haven't seen that kind of pushback from the major industry producers. We are seeing um, a little bit of concern from smaller farmers, so like CSAs, um, concerned over how Tyson might label. Uh, their meat should they adopt these practices, but I think what are those concerns? I mean, we a CSA. It's a community supported agriculture. That's a small farm that tends to market directly to local consumers. Yes, and those tend to be the folks who are doing the best job in terms of conservation as well. Right. 
So what kind of pushback are you seeing from them? I think there's concern that should Tyson adopt these practices, it's, it moves agriculture in the direction of more sustainable, more towards regenerative agriculture, but at the end of the day, um, it's still most likely going to be large monocrops of row crops, um, which is upsetting to farmers who are really practicing these uh, regenerative mm -hmm. practices on, on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. There have been concerns of whether Tyson would be able to label itself as sustainable mm -hmm. should they adopt this supply chain policy. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not something that we've really seen. Um, you know, McDonald's certainly doesn't label itself as sustainable because they're right. using cage-free chicken or eggs, right. and neither that, does... That'd be a hard stretch, yeah. Right. So I think it's, it's the same kind of thing here, where Tyson could say, this is something that we are doing to make our product less harmful for the environment, but that doesn't necessarily translate to them being mm. okay. a truly sustainable... So what, what's the next step in the campaign? So, as always, we're continuing to build public pressure on Tyson to let them know that they're not off the hook until they make real commitments to reduce water pollution and the risk Have of... Have they made any commitment at all? Nothing in writing. Um, Anything verbally? So Hologram? <laughs> I don't know. Hologram. No. <laughs> um, uh, Kevin Igley, who is Tyson's chief environmental officer, uh, at a meeting some number of months ago, um, was asked by uh, volunteers on the Mighty Earth campaign what they plan to do about the risk of water contamination in their supply chain, especially from their grain. Um, and his response was kind of vague, but mentioned for the first time that issues of fertilizer pollution um, would be, or nitrogen, uh, would be a focus for them in 2018. Okay. So, so we're in 2018. We're in 2018. What, what are they doing? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you there. All right. Um, so, so basically, you're 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 just trying to continue to. I mean, we. I know you have events uh, planned in Des Moines. You, uh, this is a national campaign, though, right? This isn't just yes. based in Iowa. So this is a national campaign, obviously, here in Iowa, where we have a lot of agriculture, both CAFOs and corn and soy production. Um, it's really important for us to be here to raise awareness in this community and also let Tyson know that those most affected by this water pollution want to see a change. Um, but we do operate in all over the country, where uh, mostly in uh parts of the country where either Tyson has a large presence or mm. we're seeing a large impact so, from uh, agricultural uh, pollution. So Ch Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay area as well? Yes. Yeah. We have an organizer in the Chesapeake Bay. Tyson is looking to uh, widely expand its uh, poultry production mm. in the area, and there's a mm. lot of pushback from the community there over not wanting and to see And how about in the Gulf? The, the states uh, along the Gulf of Mexico, I mean, that's, that's the area that's really hardest hit by agriculture in the upper Midwest, uh, are they, are you finding even any, you know, official allies in, in government and business down there? Yeah, we have uh, two groups down uh, near the Gulf of Mexico, so one in New Orleans um, and one in Dallas, Texas. We were originally going to be in Houston, but uh, okay. some weather events moved us we a little Some further weather <laughs> events, some weather events, okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think there is support there. We've been trying to work with the like shrimpers associations down mm -hmm. there since uh, dead zones obviously affect the fishing right. industry down in the Gulf of Mexico. Right, right. So so we are seeing support really throughout uh, the heartland. And okay. But yeah, and we, and we, we, we broadcast this program on WHIV in New Orleans, so I know we've got interested people down there. So okay. I mean, I, the truth is we're a lot more connected than we think, and uh, we forget that oftentimes. But um, 
Yes, yeah, so uh, you have an event coming up in Des Moines specifically this coming week, I believe. Yes. So World Water Day is March 22nd. It's a UN day, so internationally celebrated, focused on uh, bringing attention to the importance of access to clean water. Mm -hmm. um, here in Des Moines, our water's okay, um, but we are... Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we have the most expensive nitrate removal system in the world. Well, I mean, yeah. at least there's stuff being done to, to remove it from our drinking water, but it's a problem yeah, that it's there I mean, in the first place. It could be flint, you know? Yes, it could be yeah. worse, but yeah. it could also be better. Yeah, uh, sure. So on World Water Day, Mighty Earth is uh, working together with Iowa CCI and the Women's International League for Peace and Pre Freedom, Des Moines branch, uh, to come together to call on both our decision makers and on major corporations, basically those with power okay. to change the system, okay. to really take action um, and clean up our waterways. And one last question, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Jesse. Has there been any, uh, any overture toward uh, the leadership of Tyson to hold a meeting? To discuss the, you know, discuss your concerns. Are they, are they all all interested in that? Yes, actually. Um, so there's been a lot of work happening on the eastern shore of Virginia, as I mentioned. Um, both Mighty Earth and local residents have been causing quite a big stir there. So they're actually sending mm. one of their, uh, I think it's their PR of course folks, yeah, yeah. Um, or somebody out there to, right. to kind of calm things down. So we're making Good. we're making traction. Good. So if folks want to get more information about the campaign, where would you send them? So we have a Facebook page, Mighty Earth Des Moines, uh, Des Moines spelled out, and that's a great way to uh, hear information about and upcoming events. Nationally, MightyEarth.org. MightyEarth.org. Thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Farm, folks. Uh, there will be a podcast available of this show later today, uh, and also there will be more content. If you're listening on one of our community-owned stations, stay tuned. We're going to talk about the stunning re-election of uh, Vladimir Putin uh, coming up in a few minutes. Thanks again for tuning in to the Fallon Farm. It lingered there, touched your hair, and walked with me. All the summer long we sang a song and strolled that golden sand. Two sweethearts and the summer wind. Like painted kites, those days and nights went flying by. The world was new beneath the blue umbrella. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, and congratulations to Vladimir Putin on winning a stunning re-election in Russia. Okay, not really congratulations, and nothing at all stunning. You know, there's even a video clip of a woman at a, a poll worker stuffing the ballot box. I mean, come on. Uh, uh, you know, I, I thought the Russians were better at this sneaky stuff, but... Um, you fool no one, Mr. Putin. We know that you are, you know, you're going to be there as long as you want, that uh, you're, you're a dictator, and any facade of an election is um, not fooling anybody. Um, you know, I, I think maybe maybe, uh, maybe the Trump administration and, and uh, others in this country are just jealous of your ability to, to, um, to uh, rig elections, and we just, we just don't seem to have any capacity to, to pull off anything similar. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um. Lest we forget just how bad Vladimir Putin is, the guy is, by all, I mean, it's hard to nail this down, but the best estimate, the best estimate of his net worth ranges from somewhere between $40 billion and $200 billion. And if he is at the $200 billion mark, that would make him twice as wealthy as the world's richest person. And that would be Jeff Bezos, uh, Bezos with, a, with, a man, with a Amazon. He'd be twice as wealthy as that guy. <laughs> um now, Putin's uh, ties to organized crime, 
well documented. He uh, also steers government contracts to, oh, and also the sale of um, state-owned businesses to uh, those who support him and uh, those who present him with, uh, with gifts. That sounds a lot, a lot like some other um, world leader I know. Um, anyway, the, um, you know, the, 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 the most disturbing part of all this is that Putin is also alleged to have been behind a series of um, uh, killings assassinations that uh, are connected to a, an apartment bombing. There was a bombing that killed 300 people uh, back in, um, I think it was uh, 1999, and it was blamed on uh, Chechen separatists. And um, it was used as an excuse to ignite the uh, military campaign in Chechnya. And that also happened to coincide with with Putin's first run for office, first run for the office of presidency. Now, it's not uncommon, and we've seen it in this country, where uh, politicians will use war as a way to boost their popularity and, you know, and uh, launch them into, uh, into uh, a, a new or existing political career. No surprise there. But to have the adapt to actually kill 300 people to do that, uh, that's just a... Oh, that's, that's horrible. And then to cover it up by assassinating Alexander Litvinenko, Litvinenko who uh, was the former FSS, FSB officer who blew the whistle, who fled to Britain and then was poisoned in Britain. And you've also got um, Anna Politkovskaya, I hope I'm saying that right, who exposed some of the human rights violations under Putin and was shot to death in front of her apartment. There was also... Putin's opposition leader, uh, Boris Nemstov, who was shot to death in 2015. You know, and these, I understand, these crimes have not been been uh, fully explained or examined, but part of the problem is we're not able to do that. And uh, I, I think there are very few people out there who think that Putin is a good guy uh, and a benevolent world leader. Probably very few who think that winning re-election by 76.3% is... Um, is, uh, is entirely above above the board. I want to play a quick clip from uh, Masha Gessen, who um, talks about Putin, and I, I, I just think this is fairly instructive. Putin did not set out to recreate totalitarianism. He set out to hold on to power and get rich. He built a mafia state. But he built the mafia state on the ruins of a totalitarian society. And the more he cracked down in the last five years, the more the habits and the informal institutions and the survival skills of a totalitarian society came back into being. So even though Russia doesn't have a totalitarian regime, the lived experience of being in Russia these days is very much like the lived experience of being in a totalitarian society. You're yeah, well, so again, point there is that uh, it's easy to fall back into totalitarianism when you have lived under it for a long time. And of course, uh, the Soviet Union was a totalitarian regime, and even though we had hope uh, of, uh, of Russia and the other former uh, Soviet republics becoming more democratic, and again, some of them have, most of them have, uh, you see the history of totalitarianism rising up again and a leader like Putin taking advantage of that. Uh, and again, you know, the, the parallels between uh, Putin and Trump... Uh, <laughs> Now, the, certainly the, the cozy connection, the nice things that President Trump has had to say about Putin, a guy who, by any standard, 
ridiculously wealthy and using government to get rich. Uh, and again, you know, using government to make his buddies rich and cracking down on his political opponents to the point of assassination. You know, this hasn't happened in this country yet. Well, some of it has. The, the, the Trump getting rich off of the presidency is certainly happening. But uh, I'm hoping that because we don't have that history of totalitarian, the totalitarianism, we can avoid what has happened again in Russia. We'll be back in a few minutes, folks, to talk, uh, talk about the Trump administration and Trump's response to the Mueller investigation here on the Fallon Forum. Hey, welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. Um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the dialogue between President Trump and Sanity continues to escalate um, uh, with regards to the uh, Robert Mueller uh, investigation into uh, possible Russian collusion in the, uh, in the most recent U.S. election, U.S. general election. Uh, it looks like Trump may be preparing to... Um, dump Mueller or to try to get um, to, to get Rosenstein, Rob, Rod Rosenstein to, uh, to dump Mueller. Rod Rosenstein is the deputy attorney general who appointed Mueller. And uh, you know, we assume that if the task came, if the word came from Trump to dump Mueller, it would have to come from, it would have to happen through Rosenstein. But the, um, Trump is also trying to uh, denigrate the integrity of uh, former FBI director James Comey and then also um, former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who was fired recently. Uh, you know, it just it seems like Trump will stoop to no low to try to um, to try to uh, get this election, this investigation to come to an end. Trump tweeted recently, um, why does the Mueller team have 13 hardened Democrats, some big crooked Hillary supporters and zero Republicans? Okay, well, beyond the fact that that is just so child—I mean, no matter how you feel about Hillary Clinton, to keep referring to her as crooked Hillary, you know, a year and a half after you've won the election, what is wrong with this picture? But to say that there are zero Republicans? No, not true. There's a lot of Republicans who are concerned about Trump's threat to ditch the investigation. Representative Trey Gowdy, a Republican from South Carolina, he's a member of the House Intelligence Committee, and he generally supports President Trump. He said uh, to the president uh, that the, he needs to give Mueller and Mueller's team time and also independence and the resources needed to complete the job. That makes sense. That's fair. That's balanced. He said that on Fox. Um, other uh, Republican uh, leaders, lawmakers included, have um, said that the special counsel appears to be on track to the facts on Russian involvement in the 2016 election. And Senator James Lankford, of, uh, also of Oklahoma, uh, says that, um, yeah, they want to, they quote, want him to, want Mueller to be able to finish the investigation. And Chris Christie, a very strong Trump supporter, says um, on the same program, ABC's This Week, says that firing Mueller would be inappropriate. So to say that there are zero Republicans who... Um, <clears throat> who want the Mueller team to continue, is an outright lie. But again, lying is nothing new with the Trump administration. <coughs> Excuse me. So we'll see where this goes, but um, right now it seems like Trump is pushing hard to end the investigation 
which from any reasonable analysis just makes it seem more and more likely that he is guilty of something, probably something big. And we'll see if it comes out as the investigation continues, presuming that Trump isn't successful at dumping Mueller. All right, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum, folks. Again, broadcasting live every Monday, Central Time, 11 o'clock from Des Moines, Iowa, and rebroadcast on stations around the country and available as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website, www.fallonforum.com.